Well, let's go into the, the teaching of the Word. Um, so just to let you know up front, there's going to be a ton of Scripture today. So I would encourage you, you're, you're not going to be able to catch up if you're trying to look them all up in your Bible, but I, I will make all of the Scriptures available to anybody who wants them. If you'd like me to give you a record of them, no problem, I can just print them out. But there's so many that... I, I basically printed them all out, and I'm going to read them to you. <laughs> so basically, this is going to be like one running Bible today. Because what I would like to talk to you about is the sovereignty of God. And the subject is so huge and vast that I can't even do justice to it in one message. So I'm going to break it up into at least two. Um, maybe I can do part two next week and part one today. But there's just so much scripture that talks about this subject that it's important that we take the time. But uh, let's, let's just ask God's favor. Oh, Father in heaven, you are a good, good Father. We are your children. We're loved by you. And, and that's our identity, Lord. And we just come before you, Lord, and ask you, just as Joy was sharing, that you will make your path straight. You will instruct us and counsel us with your eye upon us. And we look to you, Lord, to reveal more of yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would help our congregation here at the bridge to have more confidence in you, have more peace in you, and have more joy in you as a result of us looking into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So saints, it is my goal today. My goal is to produce more confidence in God, more joy in God, and more peace in God as a result of us taking a look at what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God. So that's my objective today. And we've been studying various attributes of God, and we've come to a big one, a huge one that permeates all of Scripture, the sovereignty of God. And so let me just start off by giving you guys what I consider to be a good working definition of what I mean by the sovereignty of God. And there, here it is. God's absolute freedom to do as He pleases and His absolute control over the actions of all of his creatures. Now let me read that again and try to get, let that sink in. God's absolute freedom to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all of his creatures. So the big idea is that the same God that made the world runs the world. God is subject to none, influenced by none, and is absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases and always as he pleases. In fact, John Piper wrote a book, The Pleasures of God, and this is the main idea. God is a happy God. He's a blessed God because God does what he pleases. Now, we get frustrated and we can't always do what we please, but God always does whatever he pleases to do. Let me put some Bible under that definition that I just gave you. The, that the sovereignty of God is God's absolute freedom to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all of his creatures. Here's some Bible to support that. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135 6. Whatever the Lord pleases he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deeps. Or Daniel 435. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or let's choose one from the New Testament, Ephesians 1.11. 
we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will so because God is absolutely free to do as, as he pleases I want to look at the sovereignty of God in three distinct categories creation providence and salvation those are the three categories and today we're only gonna have time to look at the first two creation and providence and we'll come back next time and take a look at the sovereignty of God in salvation so first of all the sovereignty of God in creation before God created the heavens and the earth God was sovereign in other words God was free to do what he pleased to do and let's consider various aspects of God's creation first of all the heavenly bodies the stars the the moons the planets the meteors all the heavenly bodies when God decided to create God could have created one Sun one planet and one moon if he wanted to and that could have been everything right that's all he really needed but God didn't do that God created lots of stars and lots of planets and lots of other things that are in our space God could have created one solar system or he could have created billions of them he could have created one galaxy or billions of galaxies so the question is why did God create the number of stars and planets that he did and then why are some stars really big and others are really small for example we know of one star that's about the size of our planet Saturn in our solar system and we know of another star that's 1600 times as big as our Sun so if you look at our Sun is like a marble this is like a basketball it's, it's incredibly big first Corinthians 1541 says there's one glory of the Sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star and glory so God has created these various degrees of glory even amongst the heavenly bodies why did he do that and why would the heavenly bodies differ in glory from one another well let's move on to planet earth why is two-thirds of the earth covered by water why is one country fertile like the United States while another country is barren like Greenland why is one country plagued by earthquakes or let's say why is one state like California <laughs> plagued by earthquakes while another country like Iowa never has earthquakes why does one country abound in rivers and lakes and another country is almost completely devoid of them like Saudi Arabia why is one land rich in minerals like the US which it is and another country like Japan produces almost no minerals but let's move over to plant life why does one flower emit a fragrant aroma while another has no aroma at all why does one tree only grow a few feet tall and another grows over 300 feet tall like the California redwoods which we can see on our coast why does one tree bear wholesome fruit while another like the poison guava produces poisonous fruit in fact you can't even touch this fruit it's poisonous when it rains the water that drips down if that water drips on top of you you're gonna get extremely sick it's crazy how these different plants are, are like that why is one plant capable of enduring frost like carrots or cabbage while another withers under frost like orange trees why does one plant flower year-round while another plant only flowers once in 25 or 30 years there's a plant called the century plant 
and I'm going to butcher this, but it's called Agave Akahui, O-C-A-H-U-I. It's called the century plant, and this plant, it's taken 25 years before it flowered the first time. They thought it would only flower every 100 years, but they were wrong. It took 25 years to flower. <laughs> Let's move to animal life. Why does a Greenland shark live between 300 and 500 years while a mayfly will die within 24 hours? Why are some animals intelligent, like chimpanzees and dolphins, while others are dumb, like the sloth? <laughs> Why are some animals fit for food, while others are not, like rats and opossums and worms? They're not very appetizing to me. Why are some an animals beautiful, like a lioness or a deer, while others are ugly and repulsive, like a cockroach? <laughs> or a rat or a possum. Why do some animals have great strength like an elephant while others are very weak? Why are some fleet of foot like the cheetah who can run 60 or 70 miles an hour? You can keep up on the highway with you. But others can scarcely move again like the sloth. It just barely goes. Why are some tame while others are fierce? I'm going to get to the answer of all this pretty soon. But we're not done yet. <laughs> We need to move on to humans. Why is one person healthy while another is frail and sickly their whole life? Why are some born in one country and others born in another country? Why are some quiet and introverts while others are loud and extroverts? Why are some gifted in music or art and others are gifted in mechanics or business or seamstresses? Why are some extremely intelligent and others never progress past the intellect of a three-year-old their whole life? The answer for every one of those questions is, Thus, Father, for it was well-pleasing in your sight, because the Lord has determined that it would be so, and it pleased the Lord to do it this way. In creation, God has done exactly as he pleased. He was under no constraint from anyone or anything to create according to their will. In creation, God was absolutely free to create according to his own will. But that's creation, and that's fairly easy for us to understand. Let's move from creation now to the category of providence, and let's see the sovereignty of God when it comes to providence. And maybe you're not used to that word providence, so let's take some time to open that up and, and develop it. First of all, I'll give you the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, what is the providence of God? And this was the answer that they gave. The providence of God is His most holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has so much wisdom to it and each word was important. They took years to develop this little catechism. So think about these words. It's God's most holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And if you want a more up-to-date definition, Jerry Bridges in one of his books says, the providence of God is God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. So there's two aspects to the providence of God. God's care for his creatures and God's governing over the actions of his creatures. So. The providence of God would include the fact that God provides food for all the animals and people on the earth. 
provides drink for them and shelter. He, he watches over them. He cares for them. But in addition to that, it's also God's governing over all their actions. In other words, God is in control ultimately of what takes place in the world that he made. And you'll notice in these definitions that I gave you the word all. It keeps surfacing. God's governing over all his creatures and all their actions. And in Jerry Bridges' definition, it's his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Now, that word all tells us that God does not only govern over the good actions of his creature, but also over the evil actions of his creatures. In other words, God rules over the car accident just as much as he rules over your pay raise or your miraculous healing. God rules over the cancer as well as your health. In other words, God's providence is constant. God is not just a, an interested spectator most of the time and he breaks out of his spectator seat and does a few things here and there and then goes back into his, his spectator seat. God is continually and constantly providing for and watching over and governing over all of his creatures all of the time. One theologian by the name of John Calvin, you probably know that name from the 1500s. This is how he put it. Our Heavenly Father so holds all things in His power, so rules by His authority and will, so governs by His wisdom, that nothing can happen except He determine it. And then again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question was, what are the decrees of God? And their answer is, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His own will whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And probably the best known scripture that illustrates the providence of God is what? You guys know it? Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the providence of God. God's working all things together for good to his children. So, the providence of God teaches us that God governs all things. And so I want to take the remainder of our time today to mention 12 distinct areas that the Bible says God governs over. Number one, the heavenly bodies. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So God governs over all the stars. He's called every single one of them by name. He know, and there's billions upon billions and billions more of these stars. Up, God knows them all. And not one of them is ever missing unless the Lord permits that thing to go out of existence. Do you remember that God caused a star to appear to the Magi and it settled over the home of the Christ child so that those Magi could find the baby Jesus? Do you remember when God caused the sun to stand still for an entire day so that Joshua would have another day to fight that battle and to conquer his enemies? God governs over the heavenly bodies, the sun and the stars. 
Number two, God governs over nature and animals. He brought a worldwide flood in the days of Noah. He governs over nature. He governs over floods. He brought hail and darkness as plagues to deliver his people from Egypt. He sent plagues of frogs and flies and gnats and locusts. He sent a raven to feed the prophet Elijah. You can find all these stories in your Bible. They're extremely interesting. He caused a donkey to speak to Balaam. He caused two she-bears to devour Elisha's tormentors. He sent dogs to eat the flesh of Jezebel. He sealed the mouths of lions so they would not harm Daniel, but ordained that they would devour Daniel's accusers. He caused a great fish to swallow Jonah, and then caused that same great fish to vomit him onto dry ground. He caused a fish to carry a coin for Peter to use to pay taxes with. Do you see how the Lord governs over his creatures? <laughs> Plagues, uh, floods. Wow. God governs not only nature and animals, but he governs Satan and Satan's demons. We know that because of the book of Job, don't we? God set a limit on what Satan was able to do. He said, you can go this far, no further. You can't take his life. But I'll allow you to do anything up until that. In fact, you remember when the Lord said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and once you have turned, strengthen your brothers, so Satan had to get permission to sift Peter like wheat. He couldn't just do that. God was sovereign over what temptations or what attacks of the enemy came into Peter's life. And God either allowed them or didn't allow them according to his sovereign will. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 14, that an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized Saul. Now think about that. An evil spirit from the Lord, I take that to mean that the Lord gave permission to an evil spirit to do certain things in the life of Saul. Also, we find in 1 Kings 22 that the Lord put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of Ahab's 400 prophets who told Ahab to go up to battle against the Arameans and conquer. Well, of course, it was a lie when Ahab went up to battle against the Arameans. He was killed in battle. But the Lord put this deceiving spirit in the mouth of these false prophets. So clearly Satan is not God's equal, right? He's a created being. He's infinitely distant in terms of his power and authority than God. He can only do what God commands or permits. So God is sovereign over and God governs over the heavenly bodies, nature and animals, Satan and his demons, and number four, political rulers and events. Poli <laughs> political rulers and events. And that's good news when we start to think that our world is going chaotic and it's out of control. And what are we going to do with the current leaders? And Okay, anyway, Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Now sometimes that verse is hard to hear when you think of wicked 
governing authorities in the world. But there is a sense in which they are there because God has ordained that they would be there. Or Proverbs 21 verse 1, listen to this one. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now there was nobody in the ancient world that carried more authority than a king. A king was an absolute monarch. The king's word was law. His authority was unrestrained. And the stubborn will of the most powerful person on the planet was directed by God as easily as a farmer directs the flow of water in an irrigation ditch. That's what this verse is saying. God has no trouble at all directing the heart of anybody, including the most powerful people on the planet. So political rulers and events that they establish are, are directed and governed by God. God also governs military victories. That's number five. Military victories. In 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1, the Bible says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now notice that very carefully. It says, The Lord had given victory to Aram by Naaman. Now who is Naaman and who is Aram? Naaman is a Gentile captain of a Gentile army. This isn't God's people. This is a, an enemy army to the Israelites. But it says that the Lord is the one that was giving these victories to Aram through Naaman. So I think by extension we can say that the victories that take place are in some sense ordained by God throughout the world. In the days of King Abijah and Jeroboam, this is in 2 Chronicles 13, there was civil war between the northern ten tribes and the two southern tribes, Israel and Judah. And in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 13, the Bible says, But Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear. Now Jeroboam is the king of, the, of Israel, the northern ten tribes. And Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear so that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. So they've got them cornered. Judah's in between, Israel's on both sides because they've set an ambush up from behind and they're coming in from the front and so they're going to easily overwhelm and conquer Judah. You see the picture? Okay. But it says, when Judah turned around, behold they were attacked both front and rear. So they cried to the Lord and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry and when the men of Judah raised the war cry then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. When the sons of Israel fled before Judah God gave them into their hand. So the, the victory of Judah which is only two tribes and was surrounded by and close to being overwhelmed by Israel God gave them the victory. So God gives victory, military victories. Number six, God governs the bearing of children. The Bible teaches that God governs the bearing of children. Genesis 29:31 says, The Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. God opened Leah's womb. Opened her womb. He, he was doing something actively to enable her to bear children. 
1 Samuel 1, verses 4 and 5, says, When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord opens one womb, he closes another womb, according to Scripture. But then, in the same chapter, verse 19, the Bible says, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him from the Lord. Now the word Samuel means asked of the Lord. So she named him Samuel because she asked the Lord to give her a son and God answered her prayer. So God closed her womb at one point and he opened it at another point. Do you see God's power in all of this? Now we, when, when we meet a couple that is unable to have children, we, we might think, well, that's dumb luck. Well, that's, that's terrible. I wish they, fate had smiled on them a little bit more. Or maybe it's just in their genes or their chromosomes or whatever it is, some physical reason that they can't bear children. But if you look back far, farther enough and deep enough, you're going to see that God is at the bottom of all of these things. So the Lord opens the womb. The Lord closes the womb. Number seven, God governs random or chance events. Proverbs 16.33 the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what it meant to cast lots, but it, it was something like rolling dice or flipping a coin. It was just a random or chance thing. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, the high priest would seek direction from God by casting lots. But here it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So if we rolled dice or flipped a coin, we would just think that whatever happened was just luck, just random. However, the Bible teaches that even these things are governed by God. As, as hard to believe as that is. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings 22? I've already alluded to it, but Ahab went into battle with Jehoshaphat against the Arameans. And he didn't want to get killed, so he disguised himself. He told Jehoshaphat, don't disguise yourself, you go into battle, but I'm going to disguise myself because they want to kill me, and then they won't know who I am, and they, nobody will kill me. So he disguised himself, he was riding around in his chariot, and the Bible says one guy, one soldier, took a bow, pulled the bow at random, let it go, that arrow shot into the sky, and it came down and hit him in a chink in the armor and killed him. Because God had already prophesied, prophesied through Micaiah, that it was going to be his destruction if he went into battle. So even this chance random arrow just shot into the sky, God caused that arrow to hit the target he wanted it to hit. Number eight, God also governs our talents and our spiritual gifts. First of all, our natural talents. I get this from Exodus 31. Do you remember when the children of Israel were building the tabernacle and they were collecting all of the gold and silver and all the things they needed to build the tabernacle? Um, in Exodus 31 verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, 
saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. Now to me this is fascinating because this is saying that the skills and the talents that we have come directly from God and that God has a reason for giving us these skills. God said, I have put skill in these men in order that they may make all that I have commanded you to make. So, if you have skill as a musician or an artist or an entrepreneur or a mechanic or a seamstress or a cook or a speaker or an author, whatever your talents are, you need to acknowledge those came from God. Our sovereign God gave them to you and he's got a reason why he's given them to you. He wants you to use those things for, for his glory. But it's not only our natural talents, it's also our spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So whatever manifestation of the Spirit God has given you, it can be tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, prophecy, there's a whole list of them there in 1 Corinthians 12. Whatever that manifestation of the Spirit is in your life, it has been given to you individually according to the will of the Lord. Number nine, God governs over the length of our lives. Job 14 verse 5 says, since this person's days are determined, the number of his months is with you, God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. It says his days are determined. He can't pass the number of his months. God has decreed the length of the life of the man. Or another place would be Psalm 139.16. Your God... God, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So God has a book, and in that book is written the number of days that every person will live. Even before he's lived out a single day, God's got a book. He knows exactly the number of days every person's going to live. And you and I are not going to die one minute before that time, or we're not going to live one minute after that time. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to drive safely or, you know, to, you know just to be uh, level-headed and common sense. It doesn't mean anything like that, but it does mean that God has already decreed the number of each person's days. A tenth area, God governs the afflictions in our lives. The afflictions. In Exodus 4 verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is a Presbyterian preacher, 
He once made this statement, No person in this world was ever born blind that God had not planned for him to be blind. No person was ever deaf that God had not planned for that person to be deaf. If you don't believe that, you have a strange God who has a universe which has gone mad and he cannot control it. And I agree with him. Amos 3.6 If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? So calamities, calamities, these are disasters. The Bible says, hasn't the Lord done those things? Now, I know a lot of Christians who would say, no, the Lord has nothing to do with calamities. The Lord only has something to do with good things. Anything bad comes from the devil. Amos 3, 6 says, if a calamity occurs, has not the Lord done it? Isaiah 45, 7 the one forming the light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So God takes responsibility for the calamities. He doesn't say, oh, I had nothing to do with that. That was the devil's work. Don't blame me. He says, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Lamentations 3.37 Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? So again, God takes full responsibility, in, at least in some sense. And then in 1 Peter 4.19, the Bible speaks of those who suffer according to the will of God. There is a suffering according to the will of God. So... God not only governs all the good things that come about, but God governs all the afflictions and the calamities that come about as well. Therefore, I think that it is biblical to speak of things like tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and floods as acts of God, which sometimes your insurance will, will say, this is an act of God. Well, they can take that straight out of the Bible. God either permitted them or he caused them. He caused the flood. Uh, perhaps many of these calamities he simply permits because he has some reason to allow them to take place. They couldn't have happened apart from his sovereign will. Number 11, God governs the good actions of men. Now that's easy for us to believe, right? Of course God governs the good actions, but let's just delve into that. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So to will means to desire it, and to work means to do it. So God is working in Christians to give them the desire and the power or ability to perform good things, the thing God's, God wants them to do. And Hebrews 13.20 says, Now the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, God is working in us the things that are pleasing in His sight. No problem there. Of course, God governs the good actions of men, but here's the rub. Number 12, God governs the evil actions of men also. The Bible teaches that. How about Genesis 50, verse 20? Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Now, 
when Joseph's brothers hated him, put him in a pit, took that very colored tunic off of him, sprinkled it with the blood of an animal, sent it back to his father so his father would think he had died, and then sold him into slavery. What were their intentions? Were they good or evil? They were evil. Evil intentions. But Joseph said, God meant that for good. You meant evil against me, but God was overruling your evil intentions because he wanted to bring about a good result, which was to preserve many people alive. He had a purpose. Joseph needed to be in Egypt where God would give him the dream. He would tell the dream to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh would take his advice and they would store up grain. I think it was 20% for seven years in a row. They had these huge stylos filled with grain. And then the people of Israel would travel all the way down to Egypt to get their, the food just to survive. But God allowed evil intentions because he had a good purpose in the end. In Judges chapter 14... Verse 2, the Bible says, Samson came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know, listen to this, did not know that it was of the Lord, for the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now this is crazy. Is it, is it righteous or evil for an Israelite to seek a wife from a Gentile nation? Is that according to the will of God or against the will of God? It's against the will of God. But yet, God was overruling this evil desire of Samson because he had an occasion against the Philistines and he was going to use Samson to, to bring destruction to the Philistines. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, isn't it? Wait a minute, Lord, how can you, how can you ordain something take place that is evil because you have this other purpose over here? Well, evidently, God knows how to do that. <laughs> and he does do that. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 19, it says, There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites, living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Notice this. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, isn't that crazy? God hardened their hearts so that Joshua would leave his troops into battle and destroy those nations. Now, they could have simply made peace with the Israelites as they were coming through their land, but they wouldn't make peace because God hardened their hearts because God had a purpose to destroy them. And the ultimate example of all of this, I'm sure you can guess what it is, the cross of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4 verse 27, Listen to these words. This is a prayer of the early church. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. 
Now here the Bible is speaking of the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm sure this undoubtedly is the most evil act that was ever committed. For human beings to kill their creator when he became a man. There cannot be anything more evil than that. So it's an evil deed, yet God was overruling their evil intentions and deeds in order to bring salvation to his people. Even in the most horrible act that was ever perpetrated, God was governing the actions of men. He was predestining the cross to take place. Now, I'm on this final one, that number 12, God governs the evil actions of men, but I need to give you five truths that you need to keep in tension when you think about the fact that God governs even the evil actions of men. Number one, God uses the evil actions of men to fulfill his purposes. If we say that God doesn't use evil to fulfill his purposes, then we would have to admit that there's evil in the universe that God did not intend is not under his control and may never fulfill any of his purposes and if that's true how can Romans 8:28 be true which says that God causes all things to work together for good if evil came into the world in spite of the fact that God didn't intend it couldn't there be a time in heaven or on the new earth where evil will come into the world that God does not intend and cannot do anything about so I think we have to say, no, God uses evil actions of men to fulfill his purposes. Two, God never does evil himself and can never be charged with evil. And he never personally tempts anyone else to do evil. We know that from James chapter 1. If we were to say that God himself does evil, we would have to conclude that he's not a good God, he's not a righteous God, and therefore he's not really God at all because the Bible says that the God of Scripture is a good and righteous God. Three, God rightfully blames and judges evil men for the wicked actions they commit. In other words, God holds men responsible for the sin they commit, even though he governs over those actions. We get that from Acts 2.23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of what? Godless men. That's where we get responsibility. They were godless in that they put Jesus Christ to death. In other words, they committed an evil act and they're guilty before God. They will be held accountable to God for that evil action. Even though it was predetermined and it was according to God's foreknowledge, they are still to blame. They're responsible for the sin that they committed. Here's number four. People make real choices with real results. Never get into the idea that people make no choices or we're like puppets on a string. No, we make real choices and those real choices have real results. Now, let me try to illustrate this. Let's say that John Grisham, who's a famous author, wrote a book where terrorists assassinated our president. Okay, you got it so far? That's the plot. Now, someone could ask the question, who killed the president? Now, on one level, the terrorists killed the president, right? But on another level, John Grisham killed the president. You see that? It wouldn't be right to say because the terrorists killed the president, John Grisham did not kill the president, would it? And it wouldn't be right to say that because John Grisham killed the president, the terrorist didn't kill the president. 
on the level of the characters in the book, the terrorists are the ones that killed the president. But on the level of the author of the book, John Grisham is the one who killed the president. So, in the same way, God fully causes things in one way, and we fully cause things in another way. Can you try to... So it's not either or. It's, yes, we are making real decisions with real actions and real results, but at the same time, God is governing over everything that's taking place. And it's happening at the same time simultaneously. And then the fifth truth that we need to keep in tension. There is a difference between God's sovereign will and His moral will. When someone says, what is the will of God for this or that? I'd have to say, well, what do you mean by the will of God? Because the, the will of God can be in different senses. You can be talking about the will of God in terms of God's moral will. And God's moral will is that which is pleasing to God morally. And we know what's pleasing to God morally from His commands in Scripture. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. These are all examples of God's moral will. But God's sovereign will is what He has decreed will take place. Nothing can change that. Nothing at all. So, the cross was not God's moral will. God was not pleased with the evil actions of men that murdered His Son. But it was His sovereign will. So sometimes something can take place in line with God's sovereign will, but it not be in line with God's moral will. Every time you and I sin, that's part of God's sovereign will, but it's not His moral will. So you have to dis make distinctions between those two kinds of the will of God. Some theologians call this God's secret will and God's revealed will. His secret will is His sovereign, yeah, His sovereign will. His revealed will is His moral will. Now let's draw all of this down. We've talked about 12 areas where the Bible says God is governing His creatures and his, the creatures' actions. The Bible teaches that God governs over everything. Literally everything. Psalm 103.19 says, God's sovereignty rules over all. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things after the counsel of His will. And so, I think that if you really grasp this truth and believe this truth, it can have three really good effects in your life. Number one, you can be confident. It can make you confident as a Christian. Because you start to realize there really is no such thing as chance or fate or luck. Everything in one sense or another is determined by an all-wise, all-holy, all-good God. <laughs> and, and even, my friend, you are indestructible until God is done with you. Nothing can take your life until God is ready for that life to be taken. So it, it can breed confidence in the life of a Christian. He can face life, even the most terrible situations. It's this truth that can lead martyrs to the stake to be burned, and they can be singing God's praises as, they are taken, as their life is ebbing away. Because they know God is in control. God is going to have His way. So we can be confident. Number two, we can be at peace. It is possible for a Christian to be anxious for nothing. To not worry. To not fret. Because he realizes that God is in control. And God loves me. 
And so why should I worry and fret if God cares about me and, and is concerned for me and loves me and is in control? Yes, he may allow things in my life that I don't like, but he still is all wise and all holy and all good. So we can be confident, we can be at peace, and we can also rejoice because there is a sovereign God who's working all things together for my good. Paul says in Philippians, rejoice always and again I say rejoice. Now if God was only sovereign some of the times, we can only rejoice some of the time. But if God is always working everything according to his will, why would we, why would we stop rejoicing? Why would there be times in our life where we rejoice and other times when we don't? So, bridge saints, church family, be confident in your God. Experience more of his peace in your life. And rejoice always. These are the, these are the fruits that can flow out of the, the truth that God is sovereign in providence. God is sovereign not only in creation, but in providence. He's governing you. He's governing all of his creatures. And the Lord is going to have his way at last. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us that you are in control. Even when things look black and bleak and we are facing pain and suffering, even in those times, Lord, you are still on the throne. You're still working all things together according to the counsel of your will. You are still in the heavens and you're doing whatever you please. We just don't understand what you're doing and we don't understand the reason behind it. And we pray, Lord, that you'd, in those times, give us greater faith and trust in your character. Let us know that you are wise and that you are good and that you are, cannot make a mistake. In Jesus' name, amen.